So let's read in John's Gospel this morning, chapter 12, starting in verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's pray. God, you are so incredibly good to leave us with your word. Lord, your word teaches us who you are. It it tells us how we can be in relationship with you. It tells us how we may have eternal life. And so, Lord, we are so thankful for your word. So, Lord, this morning I pray that you give us ears to hear from you, eyes to see the beauty, the grace, the mercies upon these words. Lord, may we leave this place changed. May we not just continue to come in week after week and be the same, but may your word expose sin in our hearts that we need to confess this morning, ways that we are not being obedient to you. Lord, may we repent and trust and follow you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. If you were here last week, or if you weren't here last week, we, we looked at the beginning of chapter 12. We saw where Mary, she was over the top with her worship. She loved Jesus. She poured an ointment over his head and feet. This is something that would have been done to a king. And she was doing it to Jesus. She saw him as the one true king. 
Her worship was costly. The ointment that she used to put over Jesus cost about a year's salary. Mary thought pouring it out on Jesus was worth it. And while this scene is unfolding last week inside the house during dinner, we see in verse 9 that a large crowd began to gather to see Jesus and Lazarus. They had heard the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. So let's look down at verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So they were hearing the story of Lazarus being raised to life, and they, they wanted to come and check it out. They wanted to see if it was real. They wanted to meet this guy who was dead, now alive. And we see in verses 9 through 11 the response of the chief priests, the, the reaction to this large crowd coming to see Jesus and Lazarus. The chief priests wanted to bury the evidence about Jesus rather than facing its consequences. And here's the irony in these verses. The chief priests plan to kill Lazarus. You find that funny? Like, this is Lazarus, who had just been raised from what? From death. And now they want to kill him again. Like, imagine, they, they, they gather around. Okay, listen, fellas, I've got a brilliant idea. Everybody's coming to see how Lazarus had been raised from the dead. So let's kill Lazarus so he's dead again. You know, if, if they believe Lazarus was raised from the dead, then, then how in the world would killing Lazarus fix their problem? In fact, it may just make it worse. I mean, what if they did kill Lazarus and then Jesus raised him from the dead a second time? Like, ha, ha, ha. That would probably attract an even larger crowd, right? And just think about poor old Lazarus. You know, he's dead, he's undead, he's dead, he's undead. It's like this sick game of freeze tag. Dead. Undead. But why? Did you see why the priest wanted to do this? Did you, did, you, did you catch that? This is huge. Because the high priest's power, their influence, their authority over the people, it was crumbling. And these Jews were more bothered about their influence than the truth. See, these priests, these Pharisees, they loved their status, their power, their fame, their comfort. They loved all so much that they would do anything, and I would say anything, to protect it. Do you see the wickedness in their heart? They were willing to kill an innocent man so that they could keep status quo. The chief priest wanted Lazarus dead. Why? Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. That's why they wanted to kill him. Because people were following Jesus and not them. And I think the heart of the Pharisee is exposed in James chapter 4, verse 2. I love this verse. It's such a good counseling verse. James chapter 4, verse 2 says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. Such a simple verse, but oh, how incredibly insightful this is. You desire and do not have, so you murder. 
And I don't think this is just referring to physical murder either. I think it could be applied or addressed how, you know, you, you love the approval of others. You, you love when people make much of you. Maybe there's a new guy or new girl at work or at school, and people are starting to be drawn towards them. Maybe they're a little bit more funny. The desire you have to be liked by others is now not being met. So you murder their character. You begin to gossip about them. You begin to tear them down. You desire and do not have, so you murder. I think James 4.2 is the absolute best verse to explain the heart of abortion. You desire freedom, or you desire the convenience of doing whatever you want, whenever you want, or you desire financial security, you desire a thin body, or you don't desire the shame that might come from an unwanted pregnancy. And pregnancy potentially challenges all of those things. So you murder. These priests, they desire the Jews to respect them, to follow them, to make them feel extremely important. They were not getting that desire met, so you murder whatever comes in between you and your desire. As the Pharisees continue the scheme in verse 12, we read that on the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, even the world has gone after him. So this is the Sunday before the resurrection. It's become known as Palm Sunday. A lot of churches celebrate Palm Sunday. You may see the children waving palm branches. This section contains two important Old Testament references. Both have to do with Jesus' royal identity, that he is this king. John wants us to know that the man who is on the way to the cross is the man who sits on the throne. The palm branches, they were commonly used in this culture as a sign of victory. That's why they were waving these. The, uh, the, this large crowd believed that Jesus would bring them victory, but not the type of victory that the classic hymn, Victory in Jesus, conveys. That classic hymn um, writes, I heard an old, old story, how a Savior came from glory, how he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning of his precious blood's atoning. Then I repented of my sins and won the victory. Christ's victory was going to come through shedding of blood. They, this crowd, they were looking for a military victory. They were wanting a king to lead them away from the oppression of Rome. But that was not Jesus' plan. 
His victory would come through the cross, not the sword. When this crowd cries out in verse 13, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel, they're actually quoting Psalm 118, verse 26. Hosanna means save us, save us now, or it could be even just a generic praise or adoration. But this psalm, it was sung by the Jews as they approached Jerusalem for the Passover. So they were singing the psalm. It was on their minds. Verse 15 quotes Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9 talks about, you know, this daughter of Zion, how she shouts aloud, daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah was written about 520 B.C. It's clearly prophesying about this coming messianic king. So every good Jew would have connected what Jesus is doing here. I mean, here's this prophecy about this king who would be sitting on a donkey, and here's Jesus is sitting on this donkey, and there's some hype about him, some buzz about he could be this Messiah. So by him sitting on the donkey, Jesus is essentially saying, I am the man that Zechariah wrote about. I am he. So what is the significance of the donkey? I mean, doesn't that seem strange? Like, why would a king ever be mounted on a donkey, an animal that's, you know, usually a sign of foolishness? In that culture, it was custom during times of peace for a king to ride into town on a donkey. This would signify to that village, when they saw the king, they saw him on a donkey, it would signify that, okay, he's coming in peace. There's no need to be alarmed. He's on a donkey. But if you saw the king riding into town on a horse, then you know that wrath was coming with him. So Jesus is showing here, he's showing the Jews that he is the prince of peace, that he's riding into town on a donkey. He's no need to freak out, everyone. I come in peace. He doesn't put up a fight. He humbly and willingly marches to the cross so that you and I can have peace with God. Do you remember how Jesus comes to Jerusalem on his next visit? This is amazing. So this visit, he comes on a donkey, a few days later, he dies, he ascends to heaven, and he returns to Jerusalem. Revelation 19, verse 11. Same guy writing this gospel is writing this revelation, John. John writes this, verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, with which to strike down the nations, He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. 
On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. See, his next time riding in the town will not be on a donkey. He will be riding a great white war horse, justly bringing the wrath of God with him. Notice he will be judging the nations, and this is where the Jews didn't quite understand what was going on. Their view of Jesus was too narrow. They were thinking that the Jews were getting this new king, that he was the king, this Messiah was the Jewish king. But Jesus wasn't just going to be the Jewish king. He was going to be the king of all kings. This king would have followers from all nations. This is why missions is important. This is why Cody and Savannah are not with us this morning. They're out in Mexico getting trained to go overseas to a place to a place that has no Christians, no known Bible in their language, and no church. Because of this, that all nations will worship Jesus and will be judged by Jesus. This is why Andrew and Emily are overseas. This is why Dave and Whitney are overseas. This is why you leave this place and you're a missionary. When you go to work, when you go to school, when you go back to your neighborhood, because of this, all nations will be judged. We see this in verse 19, that, that the nations were already coming to Jesus. This was already beginning to happen. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that, you gain, that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This large crowd that was gathering wasn't just Jews. It contained Gentiles. That's what the world meant. Gentiles. There's Jews and Gentiles. And so these Gentiles, these would be considered non-Jewish people, and they were coming interested in Jesus. The Pharisees wanted Jesus gone because Jesus was taking influence away from the Pharisees. He had quickly become more important than they were. The Pharisees, they wanted the fame that Jesus was receiving. But Jesus' fame had become much, much larger than the fame of the Pharisees had ever been. No Pharisee had ever received worship from the world, and yet that is exactly what we see taking place. I want you to stop and think how laser-focused Jesus is right now. I mean, large crowds are gathering, and they're shouting out, Hosanna! Santa, Jesus, he's the king. There's hype about him. There's this buzz. The people love him. What would your flesh be saying to you in that moment? My flesh would be wanting you know, just soak it in. You need any athletes here? You ever scored the touchdown and everybody, like, whole crowd just cheering? It's what your flesh, like, you just see, you hear all this praise. How amazing would that be? I'm sure in that moment, Satan would love to whisper in Jesus' ear to distract him. You know, he might say, Hey, I know you have a few days. You're in a few days. You're supposed to go to the cross. 
But the sound, listen, all the people chanting. Isn't that awesome? Maybe you should stick around, stay a few more years, get a bigger crowd. You know, you've, you've already waited thousands of years to, to go to the cross. What's the big deal if you wait a few more years? Jesus, Jesus. Imagine how so many people would want that. But Jesus isn't swayed. He stays focused. He's locked in on his purpose. And he continues to march to Calvary. I think he can remain focused on his mission because he can see past the crowd, that noise. And I think he can actually see the individuals. He sees the brokenness, the hurting, the pain. And it leads him to the cross. He can even see past the individuals and their brokenness. And he sees his father. And he knows that the cross is going to bring glory to his father. So he sets aside all that worldly fame to make much of his father. Plus, Jesus knows that there's a greater applause waiting for him in heaven. So he remains focused on his mission. His fame was growing, not just with the Jews, but also with the world. Foreigners began to hear about the things that Jesus had done, and it sparked even their interest. Look at verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So Greeks, that's another way of saying the world or non-Jewish people. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So these Greeks, they wanted to see Jesus. This had become so much bigger than just some local man from Nazareth. This was beginning to become like this global movement. Well, Philip, in verse 22, he went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life, whoever loves his life, loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I find this really funny. I mean, pretend for a moment that you're Philip or Andrew here. Some guys come up to you, they know that you're buddies with Jesus, and they tell you that they want to meet Jesus. So you, um, you go and you ask Jesus if it'd be okay if these Greek guys could come and meet you. Hey, I met these guys, I want to know if they can meet you. And then Jesus answers them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. I wish I could have seen the look on Philip and Andrew's faces. I'm picturing, it's a puzzled face, like head kind of tilted, you know, like the kind of look like the dog gives you when you begin like to have a conversation with your dog and it goes. I mean, they, they come to Jesus, hey Jesus, we got some guys back here, they really want to know if they can meet you. Then Jesus goes on this whole speech. He never really answers their question. And I, and I imagine like Philip and Andrew, they just finally just go back and they go back to these Greeks and these, 
these guys, and you had this anticipation, like, look on their face, like, you know, what do you say? What do you say? I'm not sure. I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure what he said. Notice the shift here in verse 23. Jesus says the hour has come. Now, if you've been coming um, for a while since we started this series in, in John, uh, all, you know, all throughout this gospel, over and over, Jesus has continued to say, my hour has not yet come. But here, shift. His hour has finally come. Jesus is in complete control. He's sovereign over his life. No one's taken his life from him. He is willingly laying it down. In Jesus' reply, he gives three paradoxical statements. A paradox is a seemingly self-contradictory statement that when you examine it, it proves to be true. So some classic examples of paradox would be less is more. What? What? Addition by subtraction. What? So Jesus lists three paradoxes here. The first one is found in verse 24. If it, this grain or the seed, dies, it bears much fruit. Wait, what if it dies? It bears fruit? The second paradox is found in verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Hating your life keeps it. Third paradox found in verse 26. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. It's usually not how it goes. Usually the one that you honor is the one who, you know, is, is being served. That's who you honor. But here Jesus says the one who serves is the one the Father honors. So let's look at these. The first paradox Jesus says that you die to bear fruit, verse 24. Jesus underlines the seriousness of what he's about to say with this familiar, truly, truly, or your version may say verily, verily. In the Greek, it just means amen, amen. He's basically saying, hey, listen up. What I'm going to tell you is really, really important. Now, he's not trying to give us like the scientific lesson in plant biology. He, the, the seed does not literally die, but what he's saying is absolutely true, that in order for a seed to bear life, you put it in the ground, and then that coating must give away, it falls apart, and then the seed, this plant, begins to sprout. Death brings life. And this is where all the all religions lead to heaven type of thinking I, I just think it's so grossly insulting to Jesus. If these other religions can get you to heaven by essentially being a good person, then Jesus didn't have to die. I mean, why would he die? If all other religions will get you there, why would he come live this life to die? I mean, he could have stayed on his throne in heaven. Or he could have come to earth and just taught us how to love one another, how to have good morals, and then just to send back to heaven, call it a day. But his mission and purpose in life was to die so that we may have life. Unless a seed falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears fruit. This paradox should bring some hope. With all the junk that you have to deal with in this world, all the pain and all the suffering, for something to die, it essentially experiences pain. But through that pain, it produces fruit. 
Jesus experienced tremendous pain on the cross. But yet it produces so much fruit. So when you feel attacked or pressed, when you are almost overwhelmed by death, you should remember that this is a sowing that will yield in the follower of Christ a blessed fruitfulness. Here's the second paradox. Hate your life to keep it. It sounds strange, doesn't it? I don't want us to misunderstand what Jesus is saying here in verse 25. He's not talking about the self-loathing that says, well, should I hurt myself or I deserve to die or no one will care if I end my life. I love our country. But our country has many, many, many problems. And one of the most heartbreaking problems that we see in our culture is the increase in suicides. Suicide is not what Jesus is talking about here. I remember the first time I heard a counselor explain to me that some suicides are not because they have low self-esteem, but because they have been deceived into seeing nothing but themselves. That, that a person can't see beyond their own pain, their own hurt. That it's not from a low view of themselves, but from having a too high view of themselves. That kind of blew my mind away. I didn't quite understand that until that day. So when Jesus says, hate yourself, he's not giving you permission to self-loathe. Jesus is using the word to mean self-denial, that there is a willingness to give up things that might stir your affections. This could be self-denial of fame, fortune. could be denying your family, Jesus is saying, you had to choose between those things and me. It shouldn't be that hard of a choice. This is why I think the Bible is far superior um, as a book if you are interested in studying like psychology, counseling, anthropology. The Bible gives us so much insight to how humanity functions and operates. There's an assumption made all throughout the Bible about mankind, that secular psychology, counseling, that I, would, that I had learned at Marshall, would disagree with. The assumption is, is that, from the Bible, is that we already love ourselves. So when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, some people have said that Jesus was giving two commands there. The first command, that you need to love yourself. And then the second, to love your neighbors as you love yourself. I don't think that's Jesus' point at all. I think Jesus is assuming you already have the first step down perfectly. You have no problem loving yourself. Even the person who goes around and talks about how terrible they are, even that could be because they do not feel like they are being treated as well as they should be treated. You should love me. Look how great I am. You're not doing that, so now I'm going to complain about how no one is treating me the way I feel I should be treated. It's been said that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Let me say that again. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, like, oh, woe was me, woe was me. It's thinking of yourself less. So in a conversation... You're asking people, how are you? You know, what's going on in your life? That's humility. It's not like, oh, just 
my life's terrible, I'm, I'm not any good. That's not humility. That's actually probably making much of you. You want people to say, oh, I'm so sorry for you. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. It's learning to replace the endless focus of self with the endless focus on Christ. That's what he means. Hate your life, lose your life, hate it in this world, gain it in the next. If you still think that maybe I'm off, that, that we do need to love ourselves more, just, just go to social media. My goodness. What do we all talk about on social media? Ourselves. Here's a picture of me. Look what I've done. Look at my meal I'm eating. I mean, it's, it's, it's all about me. And Jesus is saying, take the focus off of you. Put it on others. Make much of them. The last paradox is serve to be honored, which is so strange. Usually the one who is being served is the one that's like, you know, we're, we're honoring that one because we're all serving that person. That means they're really important. But here Jesus is saying, no, it's the one who's serving. That's the one who's going to be honored. It's a paradox. It's crazy how many things that the world whispers to you are actually the same thing that the Bible is offering to you. I don't know if you've ever realized this. So the world whispers things like, hey, you want to live forever. So you know, we exercise, we want to eat right, we want to take all these vitamins, we want to you know, have surgeries, we want to do all these things to live forever. We want to make a difference. We want to be honored. The Bible offers those same things but a completely different path to get them. One comes through pride of promoting oneself and the other through humility and making much of others. The Christian life is not to look inward, but is an outward look to Jesus, to see him, to savor him, to adore him, to make much of him. There is an inevitable conflict inside our beings we cannot love our life, that is, we cannot want what we want selfishly for ourselves and expect that way of life to give us true life. It just doesn't work. That's why some of you, you grew up in church. Maybe this is your, your first time here. You, you've been at Marshall for a week, and you thought, man, there's some things I want there that college is going to offer me. Maybe some of you have already gone down that path. You've messed up this week. You thought, if I could just do those things, then I would be satisfied. That would be true life. And you're miserable already. Because those things will never satisfy you. Only as we die to our selfish selves can we find life as we were meant to enjoy it. We must die to ourselves to live to Christ and to find real life in him. Jesus tells us that serving leads to honor and death leads to life, while self-preservation leads only to our destruction. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What an incredible contrast to when we die. 
Jesus dies. He's lifted, made much of. When we die, we physically rot. But his death generates a massive harvest. And when we become servants of Jesus, don't miss this. When we become servants of Jesus, the Bible says, Jesus says, the Father will honor you. Is there a better promise I could give you this morning than that? That if you serve Christ, the Father's going to honor you. The God of all creation is going to make much of you, going to honor you because you do what you're supposed to do anyways. You're going to do what's going to bring you the most satisfaction and joy in your life, to serve Jesus. But yet when you serve Jesus, the Father will honor you. Man, I don't deserve that. My Father will honor the one who serves me. That's what Jesus says. Incredible. Die to bear fruit. Hate yourself so you may live. Serve and you will be honored. Let's pray as the band comes back up. Father, we are overwhelmed, blown away by these statements. They seem so foolish through the world's lens. Lord, I pray that you would help us to trust you, that we would stop focusing on ourselves, that we would make much of others, that you would humble us, I pray that we would lay down our lives so that we may gain eternal life. I pray that we would be servants. And by being servants, we will be honored. Lord, how gracious are you that Jesus does all the work of salvation. He, he comes, he lives a perfect life, he dies on the cross, he's raised from the dead. And then he lavishes his riches upon us. Lord, we are so unworthy of that. Lord, may that lead us. May that lead us to a place of servanthood. Not to pay it back, but out of gratitude, thankfulness. Lord, help us to carry out these attributes this week in our lives. May we teach them to our children, to our children's children. May we shine bright for you, Lord. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.